What is it about? Computational communication science? Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast, What is it about computational communication science? My name is Emesha Domahidi, I'm an assistant professor for computational communication science at Technische Universität Ilmenau in Germany. Today we have an amazing episode and ask, do communication scholars have to code? Hi, my name is Mario Heim. I'm a professor for communication science, especially computational communication research at LMU Munich in Germany. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Jacob Fischer with us. Hi, Jacob. Hi. Jacob is uh, an assistant professor uh, in the College of uh, Media at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And he's also an affiliate of the Illinois Informatics Program, as well as the Illinois Beckman Institute for Advanced Science and Technology. Jacob's research interests lie at the intersection of, of digital technology, of attention and decision-making, and he currently uh, uses functional neuroimaging, essentially, behavioral measures and computational modeling to explore how effort requirements, how perceptual complexity and motivational factors um, in digital contexts influence attention and how they and goal pursuit, essentially. And he also works to build theory and refine methods in media psychology, As part of these efforts, he co-created a few publicly available uh, tools and infrastructure to some extent, um, including a command line tool for applying the Extended Moral Foundations Dictionary that some of you are maybe familiar with, EMFD, as well as an interface for the global database of events, language and tone, GDELT. I'm pretty sure some of you are familiar with that one. This episode's question, leading question, is how do communication scholars have to code? And of course, the first question here is, Jacob, can you code? How have you learned to code? Yeah, I can code, at least somewhat. I think everybody kind of is along a certain point of a journey learning to code, even if you're somewhat of an advanced developer. I learned to code mostly through trial and error, Googling things, finding out things on Stack Overflow. But I also went through a few classes. I took a class on statistical modeling in R, um, another one for Python, and some other more sort of unofficial courses, online courses, these sorts of things. Um, but mostly, I would say trial and error. Yeah, I think this sounds familiar to a lot of us, <laughs> I would say. We already touched upon this a bit in um, some re uh, recent episodes. I feel that this whole question of coding, whether we can code and how good we can code, is getting more and more a topic in communication science. At this year's ICA, we had something new. So you co-organized the ICA 22 hackathon. So, of course, we would be very much interested in... First of all, why you did set up this event, and then, of course, which experiences you had during this event. Yeah, definitely. So the ICA Hackathon this year was was a lot of fun, and me and a team of other really awesome co-organizers put it together. We had actually originally planned to put together the Hackathon for ICA 2020, um, but then there were some, some events that occurred uh, that inhibited <laughs> that from happening. So we were hoping to do the hackathon back um, in Gold Coast in Australia, but we ended up uh, just sort of pushing it back a couple of years and doing it this year in Paris. And it was just a, it was a really great event and the first of its kind at ICA, but it's it's part of a growing group of hackathons from from all over the scientific research community, especially in the more data heavy fields, things like geology and neuroscience, and there's even ecology hackathons um, that happen all over the world. So we were hoping to bring communication science kind of into the fold with doing hackathons. 
and it has been a huge success uh, what i've heard there have been lots of registrations so many even that you had to limit the number of places i was told yeah absolutely we uh, we were floored by the interest in the hackathon we had For about day two that we opened the signups, we were already full. We had the venue that we booked in Paris only held about 50 people. And so we didn't expect to fill up in a couple of days, but we did. And it seems there's already a lot of interest for potentially doing a hackathon next year, pending that it works out. And ICA thinks this is something we should do again. So hopefully it's something we can just continue the momentum moving forward and doing more hackathons preceding ICA. So definitely lots of interest. How would you estimate the level of, of competence that people came with? So how many of these people came with a good portion of interest and how many of these people came with a lot of knowledge about coding already? Pretty much exactly what we were hoping for. So one of the things with hackathons that I think is is a really great contribution of this model for a, for a pre-conference is that they're they're designed to really have multiple people at multiple different skill levels come together to complete a task where the people who maybe don't have as much coding skills yet, they can learn from the people who are more advanced and the people who are more advanced can benefit from being able to explain and being able to teach the sort of coding that they're doing. Because one of the best ways to learn and to really develop expertise, especially in coding, is to explain what you're doing to somebody else, to know what exactly you're putting into the the editor that you're using to analyze the code in this way or to scrape the data in this way. So we had a pretty big distribution. There were some people who had basically no coding experience and there were some people who were even better than, than the organizers as far as their coding expertise. So it was, it was really all that we could hope for. And I guess that's a, a great segue also to our first main topic. I mean, a lot of these participants in their daily life also teach They teach statistics, maybe they teach methods, maybe they even teach if a curriculum allows it to code. Is that, why, why this interest now or two years ago at for Gold Coast in, in coding, what has changed in teaching statistics and teaching methods and teaching coding for communication science? That's a great question. I think I would probably condense it into two main changes that, that have driven this push toward more what you would call computational sorts of methods um, with coding, especially with statistical modeling. And one of those changes is that these tools have just gotten much more widely available. They're they're much more usable. There are packages now for R and for Python that, that reduce the overhead quite a bit when it comes to getting into the world of coding your own analyses versus using a GUI and pointing and clicking around SPS, SPSS or something like this. Another change, I think, is there's been a a pretty big awareness, especially over the last 10 years, of the importance of being able to produce, reproduce your own analyses. So having, there's always, of course, been the functionality in SPSS to use the code um, where you either through the GUI or however you want to do it, you can put out the code for SPSS. But it was pretty rarely used, at least within the published academic literature. But within the last 10 years or so, the, the question of being able to reproduce your own analyses has become much more important to ensure that those analyses are reliable, that they can be checked even in the peer review process. So having having code that you can publish or that you can put in a, in a repository somewhere has definitely been one of the, I would say, drivers in moving toward a coding approach. Then, of course, there's also, I would maybe add even a third thing, that there's just so much more you can do now these sorts of packages in R or approaches in Python that you just, you just couldn't do in the past. Things like scraping social media data, building a bot in Selenium, or more advanced forms of statistical modeling. They just really, especially when you get into the world of machine learning, these are, these are things that you can't do in, in a GUI. 
um, the industry just requires picking up these coding tools to do some of these new forms of analyses. Then if, if you say it like that, of course, it seems like we open a lot of possibilities with coding and that might be the reason why we do it. And of course, we can kind of improve our scientific output. But in general terms, what does it mean to code then? It seems to be such a huge field, right? Yeah, and it's even, it, it's a really interesting question because it, what it means to code is even even rapidly evolving over the last couple of years with the, there have been more and more what are, would have been called no-code tools that have been being pushed out to the market. Probably some of the biggest ones are consumer-grade tools like Coda or Notion, these sorts of programmable documents that people use where you can even do what you would consider things that used to require coding that now kind of, again, are moving back into a, a no-code framework. I would say what it means to code is interacting with a computer using typed language versus using buttons. So click, clicking around in a GUI, I would say typically you would not put under the umbrella of coding, but if you're telling the computer to do something using language in some way, using either a coding language like Python or using, I mean, even the computer's native language with binary code, I mean, I think just using language and certain structures and syntax to do things on a on a computer or other sort of interface that you couldn't be able to do through clicking around that's a rather broad definition right from kind of being able to tell a computer what to do to binary coding or i don't know c plus plus or, or or coding stuff like that probably could envision this skill of being able to code as a as a continuum in a sense for computational communication science, where does this leave us? What does it probably mean to code in this field? Is it really just being able to transform your analysis into something readable for others? Is it the ability to, to make use of the new methods by putting anything that you find on Stack Overflow into a script? Or is it an even more professional way of coding what computer science, for example, understands as coding is test-driven development, is um, deployment, is professional documentation, etc. Yeah, there's there's definitely a very long continuum, and I think one of the things that I've realized the more that I've learned to code and the more that I've developed a little bit of expertise in several different coding languages is that there's never really a point where you've arrived. There's never really, I mean, even whenever you Are, see people working for the huge tech-driven companies, there are still things, like, like you mentioned, with test-driven development, where you're still checking your code, you're still learning, you're still learning how to do things in more elegant, more efficient ways or new ways. So I think one of the, I would say, false assumptions that people have who want to get into the world of code is that suddenly you're going to pass a threshold where you say, I know how to code. And it's really more of a more of a journey than it is a, a state of being somewhere of knowing how to just like learning a language or learning any other sort of skill where there's there's a point where of course you you cannot fall off of your bike so to speak you kind of know how to put in the basic commands you know what you would type in if you were to do a certain thing at least vaguely but that that process of development continues and it's not like there comes a point where suddenly you say ah I know R now like suddenly I am an expert in R. Um, it's always a it's, it's always a process where you're continuing to move forward and, and even the, at the expert level in, in industry where people are coding all day every day for their job 40 hours a week it's it's not something where 
they've reached the end of knowing how to code or reach some destination point. Of course not. But for them, it's their main job, right? For us, it's a, a skill, essentially. Our main job is probably doing research or teaching. So it's really just one means to, to, to the larger end. So where in the spectrum would you see copy-pasting Stack Overflow to completely, I don't know, test-driven, documented C++ uh, code? Would you see the requirements for current CCS scholars? Yeah, it definitely depends, I would say, on your question of interest and to what level you want to explore your question of interest. Like if you're a, a scientist who collects survey data and is modeling just sort of fairly straightforward linear relationships between variables, the, the bar to entry with code is it's relatively low. There are pretty well documented packages for doing linear modeling, for doing things like ANOVAs and these sorts of things where you can move from, like if you're the type of person who has been formerly fine with SPSS um, and most of your work is usable, SPSS is useful for it, then the bar to entry for moving to R or moving to Python is, is probably pretty low. But if you're getting into the world where you're doing things like machine learning, you're using neural networks, you're scraping large quantities of data from public repositories like social media sites, if you're doing things like causal modeling or doing things with Markov chains, those are where the bar gets more and more elevated because you're just what you're doing is more and more complicated. The short, the short answer I would say is that it depends on what you're interested in. And it depends on to what extent you really want to pull apart what you're interested in, in a, in a really detailed way. If you talk about the question whether communication scholars need to code, could I not just cooperate with a computer scientist who could then write my code for all these methods you were talking about? My, I would say, fairly strong opinion on that is no, um, because unless you really know what the code is doing, the code could be doing something that you don't want it to do and that actually compromises the, the validity of the research that you're doing. There was an example recently where I was talking to someone who is affiliated with the computer science program at another university here in the U.S. who was talking about modeling behavior in online spaces. And they created an agent-based model of behavior in online spaces when it comes to things like polarization and identifying misinformation. And the computer scientist that I was talking to, I had asked how, how in the model they, they determined what was misinformation or what was not misinformation. And the computer scientist goes, oh, well, that's the easy part. We'll just model it. We'll just have the model like give a, give a probability. And so if you're not in that, if you're not in the headspace of knowing how the code actually functions, you could end up accidentally doing something that could be potentially harmful to the research program because the, the code is doing something or is making an assumption that is actually not in line with the theory that you're using. There, there are theoretical questions embedded within code that you have to be at least familiar with to know how those theoretical questions are being operationalized in a model, in however you're pulling data. And this depends on whether you're scraping data, whether you're analyzing the data. There, at every step of the process, your theory comes to bear in, in what you're doing. And so just letting somebody else do it could potentially be harmful for your ability to answer the questions that you're interested in. Even worse than that, you may not know. You may <laughs> not ever know that the data are yes. invalid. Um, yes. Because if you're not familiar with what's being done, then you may not really even ever become aware until, I mean, 
the the worst case scenario is always you've published something and then somebody comes out and says, hey, you said that your code was doing this, but it actually does this. Did you know that? And then you say, oh, no, now I have to retract this paper and now I have to undo a lot of what I thought was my research program because there's some something in the code that you didn't understand that that ends up compromising the validity of your findings. I guess this touches to some extent what we also discussed in a previous episode with Claudia Wagner, computer scientist herself, and or what we talked about was the necessity to being able to cooperate in a modern way, which is not that party A being, for example, the communication scholars bring in the theory and party B, the computer scientists bring in the coding and then that magically ends up in a great collaboration, but rather that we need a, a common level, a common ground to discuss and that requires some social scientific understanding for the computer scientists, but it also requires some understanding of a computer scientific thinking, way of thinking, and basic understanding of code for us. For example, in that computer scientists like to come up with models that predict future behavior um, or predict future decisions, whereas we tend to like to explain previous and observed behavior. And just understanding this and then being able to talk about this on a, on a level also of, of code is um, certainly something that, that is beneficial in that. But how much coding skills do we need for that? And if we talk about that very in detail, is it enough to understand what a variable is, what if and else means? Is it enough to understand a loop? Or do we need to be able to understand how many iterations a certain model needs and how that translates into computing time? It's a really great, great question. I think, so being able to do the simple things, know what a for loop is, know what an if else statement is, can create some pretty rapid improvements in, I would say, research quality of life. Like you can, you can do little operations with your data that you <laughs> wouldn't be able to do in Excel or file operations like renaming tons of files in a batch or cleaning some line out of a, C, out of a CSV file quickly. Those are the sorts of things that the low bar of entry really, really can have a lot of gains pretty quickly. So I would encourage any communication scientist that deals with data, especially data that, that tend to be bigger than a survey, of developing some of these very basic coding skills in, in just one language, maybe pick R or pick Python, find a question that you're interested in. But as far as the, the more high level understanding of what coding is um, with things like computational complexity, for example, like, is this an NP hard problem? Or is this like a N squared complexity? Or is this or knowing how stacks work, knowing how like priority queues or like the sorts of the under the hood things that are happening in the computer. If you're getting into a world where you're scraping and using large quantities of data, there kind of comes a point where you're forced to, to learn. This has been my personal experience, at least, is there have been several times that I've said, oh, well, I'll go and do, I'll just do this model on this computer. And then I break the computer and the computer crashes. And then I have to think, oh, this is actually this, the complexity of this model that I'm running is too much for my computer right now. So I have to think about how to parallelize, how to batch, how to do some of these other things that maybe you're fine not knowing at the beginning. The, the deeper you get down the rabbit hole, so to speak, the more that you really have to learn to get your headspace into the headspace of the computer to say, like, what, if, what am I telling this computer to do and why is it telling me no? And then knowing how to revise your code or pull in other tools to make your model more efficient, to make it more 
parallelizable. These are the things that as you get further and further down the road, you pick them up as you go. Very often uh, for students, for example, actually, at least I try to show them a simple thing, so step-by-step -step approach, and always say, okay, this scaling up things, right, using the complex models is step two, because then you will encounter very different problems. Then it's not only about, I don't know, being able to script yeah, this in R, but actually really to think about how this works and whether you can use your laptop or not and how you could do it. So that's actually... I would say a challenge in teaching because I find that students very often want to do huge or work on huge data sets, but then cannot even do the simple things yet. And uh, of course, we need to include a lot of intermediate steps until we can get there without being too frustrated because everything is too much and maybe they might not understand the problems that they have to solve. But in general, I find that that what you told um, is very accurate and still very often we have problems when we teach students like that communication students might find this very hard at least in the beginning because for some of them it's a surprise when they enter my courses like they had different expectation when they uh, assigned for a communication science program they wanted maybe to do something with journalism or creating i don't know media content like movies or advertisement these kind of things so what do you think how can we overcome this fear or this skepticism for example from students and maybe as well yeah for uh, early careers against programming Yeah, one of the things that I've actually found to be pretty helpful is letting students figure out that you can be creative with code. That I think a lot of people start out with wanting to do linear models or wanting to do like, I don't know, linear algebra sorts of things with code where you're crunching numbers and analyzing data and this sort of thing. One of the things that I've found to be pretty useful is getting students into the world of like generative art or other sorts of things where you can use code in a way that does something neat that's not numbers immediately. So using things like coding different equations for building fractals or doing like a generative art project to create random symbols or these sorts of things where they're using the code in a way that's not scary math the monster lurking under the surface of the waters with code is that it's ultimately math. And I think that math for a lot of students and for a lot of people, math is hard. It feels like math is, it makes you feel dumb often because it's very precise and people don't tend to think very well in the sorts of ways that math calculates things. So I think having them do something that, that the output's more creative versus the output being a number that then is right or wrong, it gets over some of the initial like fears of not wanting to be wrong when it comes to making the code and then going from treating it more of a like, oh, well, if I want the like generative tree diagram that I'm using to look like this, maybe I do this. Or if I want it to look like this, maybe I do this. So it gets more into the, the non-threatening way of talking to a computer through code that I personally have found, found helpful. I know there are lots of strategies to help especially communication and social science students become more comfortable with the idea of, of interacting with their computer through code versus through, through a user interface of some kind. I like this idea a lot. I will definitely try out this generative art project idea. This I never have done. I feel myself that sometimes it's super boring to learn to code. 
So if you look at introductory courses, they very often start with this 2 plus 2 equals 4 thing or introducing and or stuff that seems super useful later when one understands the whole concept. But maybe very much in the beginning, it's like, oh, wow, I wanted to... I don't know, calculate topics and why am I starting you know, with, with operators? Why do I need them? So we very, I think in the beginning, it's hard to understand why we need all this introductory stuff. And I guess if I could yeah, generate some RT picture with my code, then I would already understand why this is fun and makes sense before then I go back to the basics. What do you think about like joint programs? For example, bring together computer scientists who are maybe already firm in coding and communication scientists or social scientists who still have to learn? I think it's great. I mean, we actually here at the University of Illinois, we have a, a one program that's fairly well established now called CS Plus, where our computer science program collaborates with other majors across campus to do. So we, we have a CS Plus advertising, for example, which is I'm in the advertising department at the U of I, and one of our programs is our students take the CS undergrad core and then sort of come back to us for their upper div classes where they're doing classes in more kind of computational thinking, thinking about the the impacts or the, the consequences of using code in an online communication environment. And so we have the CS plus programs, I think, are really powerful here. Um, they're one of the more popular majors for our undergrads, one of the more selective majors. Um, we also just recently have started, I think as of this fall, we'll be starting our data science plus. So they're DS plus programs where students are in the more. So the CS plus, you're getting the whole the whole spectrum of learning how computers work. You're doing introductory sort of circuit diagrams and stack models and algorithm, like learning it, you take a class in algorithms. The DS Plus is much more focused on data visualization, data scraping, data cleaning. And so it's more applied than this than the CS Plus. The CS Plus programs have been really successful, and it's always a good idea to bring people from across, whether it's across campus or whether it's across disciplines together to, to do these sorts of things. So that's kind of the opposite way of what we at least on this podcast, tend to think, starting with the communication science and then adding something else, whereas you start with something else, essentially, and, and add the, the communication perspective or the social scientific perspective. When I think about my classes, about computational whatever methods, I tend to think or I like to think that this also helps students for whatever job they will later get because it provides some sort of way of thinking, a structured way of thinking, maybe some sort of data literacy, keywords that we have touched upon in, in, in several other uh, episodes as well. But I find that very hard to tell students when I'm showing them how to do a two plus two, <laughs> how to include a package for, for doing an, an ANOVA, for example. So another approach might also be to start with a Usually what I do in my courses is to start with the social scientific perspective with a question, a research question, for example, and then to think how we can integrate the computational methods into that and try to kind of, in a, in a parallel, smooth way, sneak in some, some two plus two-ish coding structures for the students so that they don't think they learn how to code, but how to solve the, the original research question. But kind of, by the way, also a bit learn how to code. 
But if I understand you correctly, that's not your approach. So here at the, in the major programs that we have for computer science, um, they do start with the CS. Um, they do, there is some parallelism. So they'll take a, like a couple of CS courses in tandem with a couple of advertising courses or whatever their, whatever comes after the plus their chosen add on to the CS. I definitely see there are pros and cons to either approach. I think starting with the social scientific, starting with an interesting question, can there are lots of advantages to that as far as getting students interested i also think there are a lot of advantages to starting with cs sorts of problems one of the things that i like to i, I teach a class here at the university of illinois on ad tech and like how ad tech works and how advertising and especially computational advertising shapes the modern internet landscape and one of the things that i talk about in that class is we do an introduction to some of the canonical computer science algorithms, things like sorting and shortest path and those sorts of, it's, and it seems like students are, it just kind of depends on the student, which one they're more interested in. Some of the students, whenever I explain social scientific sorts of questions, they're yawning and sort of leaning back in the back of the classroom. But then whenever you talk about like, how can you take a giant set of things and sort them the fastest possible with the least errors? Some students are much more animated by these more practical questions. And so I think having that, that balance of how can you build an algorithm to find the shortest path from A to B, especially if you can introduce it as like algorithm is what Google Maps uses to get you from point A to point B. And you can have it on your computer and find two arbitrary point, the distance between two arbitrary points. Some students tend to be animated more by the practical concerns. Some students tend to be animated more by more of the social scientific concerns. And I think we, I, in my personal either training of students or teaching, I tend to try to flip back and forth between the two rather than starting with one and going to the other. I tend to kind of say, hey, here's like a computer science algorithm that gets you from point A to point B or sorts things. And here's a social science problem. Like why is misinformation so intractable online? Or why do we pay attention to things in media that we wish that we didn't? Um, like these, these sorts of questions. And it t some students tend to like one or the other and some can bridge back and forth. Introducing both in a sort of interleaved way is what I've tended to find the most success with. I guess if you say it like this, I was, I was thinking back to one of my classes when I did as well a joint class of computer scientists and communication scientists that together with a person from computer science. I actually talked a lot about sampling, the question of sampling, because uh, I found that suddenly we have different questions, right? So maybe for computer scientists, it's not so difficult to download a lot of data, right? But which data to download becomes yeah, more of a question that we need to solve, which might be more natural for communication scientists, I think, who might then struggle with the code for downloading a large data set. Listening to you, I was thinking, even though we might agree, I think the three of us might agree that we need a basic or advanced understanding of coding in order to be able to ask the right questions and to at least be that much in the process that we are able to cooperate with computer scientists in a good way. But maybe in the end, we need to specialize at some point for different roles. If we go outside academia, for example, data science teams in, in large tech companies, normally people are there and have specific roles. So not everyone can code at the same level, right? Not everyone is able to ask the question at the same level, but there are different roles. And we still, as scientists, think more in individual people who have to 
know everything in one person. I mean, not only a bit, but like fully. And that's how we can then do science. Do you agree with that? Or is this just a maybe a strange viewpoint on the problem? I definitely agree with, with you as far as specialization and especially specialization within the context of team science is unequivocally where I think the, our field and every other field is going. I mean, essentially, especially if you look at questions of large scale human behavior or very small scale things relative to, related to human behavior, like the neuroscience of decision making or these sorts of things. These questions are just so large that the old model of the sort of lone scientist with experiencing a revelation in their office and writing a paper about it is it's it's going away very quickly not only for communication and media scholars where we're suddenly being thrown into the mix with these good examples of these are ctap at unc where you have these large interdisciplinary cs ds communication hci people all being thrown together in the same institute to answer these sorts of question-driven research items rather than saying, hey, I have this theory and I'm going to do a survey with 200 people to find support for my theory. Instead, it's saying we have a question of how to make the online world better in some way. And of course, theories are going to come to bear there, but it's much more the ability to speak cogently across fields that have very different assumptions about what data are or what and what the what a good result of an analysis is or what what is what the standard of evidence is kind of like we were talking about earlier with predictability versus explanation it's having maybe not fully hopping into the computer science world and saying hey, i i know i no longer care about explanation i'm only going to predict but knowing how to communicate cogently across fields that have very different assumptions about standards of evidence than you do about how evidence is generated is increasingly, I mean, I would say within the next five to 10 years, at least there's going to be a, if not, I don't, I don't think it's going to be all the field by any means, but a large proportion of the sorts of questions communication scholars are interested in are going to be these discipline bridging questions where you have to know, even if you don't know how to code, in that you can sit down in front of an IDE and build an app or something. You're going to have to know how to communicate about what code is doing and how to communicate about and understand what your collaborators are doing, in, at least in, a, in, a, in an abstract sense, to know, hey, these are the assumptions your code is making. This, these are the steps that you're taking. And if I come in with a social science perspective, here's the potential issues I see with the way that your code is operationalizing this as far as from a simulation perspective, from a scraping perspective, like you were mentioning with sampling. The ability to, to speak cogently across different fields as different specializations is becoming more and more of a almost non-negotiable when it comes to doing really forward thinking, especially grant-driven sorts of work where you're trying to do more solution-oriented thinking. It's becoming more and more of a central aspect of modern research. I would like to agree, but having, I'm having some issues here. So I agree with you for a good portion of our discipline. And I think this is also where, where the, the, the huge interest, for example, in the hackathon originates from. I think there are still some parts of our discipline that can remain 
mainly untouched. We, we, we're having long-standing uh, traditions of, of certain types of methodology that might be capable of doing their things without coding. That said, I also agree with you that this ability to bridge is something that is very important also to the industries. But, and here's my issue, I'm not sure how to sell this and I'm not sure how to tell my students to sell this because they do not fall into the typical categories that employers seek their employees currently. They're looking for a, let's say, data scientist. But unless they did the DS plus study that you, that you talked about, they are not fully equipped data scientists in that sense. The industry is looking for data engineers which essentially is a fancy term, I would say, for computer scientists, but it's not what communication scholars are. We might be able to help in the realm of explainable AI, which is a huge thing in computer science these days. But applying for a job like that without a computer science background, but coming from the social sciences, is not really, I think, what the industry is currently looking for. So how to well, communicate that, that we are essentially educating Great personnel, great bridging personnel here. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah, it's a great point. Um, and I think especially at the undergraduate education level, there's quite a bit of work still left to do as far as integrating a, the perspective from computer science and the perspective from the social sciences. One of the things with our, our undergraduates in our CS Plus program, one of the, the roles that we've found that they're especially well-suited for are software project management or software team lead sorts of roles where we have a lot of students go right out of graduation and go work for a software company, but not as a developer. They are to do a, to manage a product where they're communicating with developers. They know enough code to, to be dangerous, so to speak, to know what the developers are doing in a way that they can communicate that to the client or communicate that to to a, a higher up manager, but they're not going to be the ones sitting in front of the computer all day actually coding. So these sorts of these bridging roles are, at least in the industry, becoming more more widespread as as so software companies seek to hire team leads that are that have the social skills, that have the sorts of overarching understanding of social scientific research methods to then help the coding oriented folks coordinate themselves and reach goals and these sorts of things. From the research side of things, I would say it's also becoming more important, especially when it comes to one of the things that I mentioned earlier with doing more kind of grant funded or large scale research. I totally agree with you that there are substantial corners of the field that will keep doing what they're doing and keep finding interesting things without having to worry about what the CS folks are doing. But we're finding increasingly and at least in my own work, that it's becoming m much more important to understand the, the, the overall ontology of a concept or of, a, of an idea from whatever field that idea or a cognate idea has been investigated in. So if, if I'm interested, for example, and this has kind of been at the top of my mind recently with immersion or with sort of flow or these sorts of similar psychological states underlying media use that we kind of have to think about what psychology has to say about those concepts, what even more computer science developing applications that create immersive experiences, what they have to say about these experiences, rather than thinking that the perspective that we have within our field captures the full breadth of a concept that 
being able to step back and say, hey, I use this term for this, but it sounds a lot like what computer scientists say is this. To really move forward, I probably should know how these are integrated or different. Even thinking about things like explainable AI is in order to create explainable AI, I have to kind of know what AI is at least doing in in an abstract sense. I don't have to know the individual weighting of all the neurons in the neural net, but I have to know at the core questions of what AI is trying to do and how, at least at a course level, those are implemented in order to say, to explain it, you you have to know how to build it, at least in an abstract sense. So I think these sorts of field bridging problems are definitely at the undergrad sort of employability, thinking about the structure of undergraduate majors, these sorts of things. But also at at the research level, it's becoming more and more apparent to me that the perspective that one field has on a topic is almost never the last story, at least when it comes to creating some sort of practical benefit to to the work that you're doing. So maybe the suggestion to students then is to don't hold back with these skills in your CV when applying, when talking to potential employers. We've had great success with having our students communicate those to employers and getting really great opportunities after graduation it's been great and you know in a practical sense if you assume that digitization is everywhere outside (laughs) in this world then of course data is not only important if you go to a software company as well in journalism or pr right a lot of decisions or stories or whatever are based on on digital data and so if if we want to be a pr expert for a company that want to make sense of this data then of course coding skills are super useful and i think that this is a real advantage that one could have a student could have as compared to maybe other students or other graduates who do not have uh, coding skills and might not know what to do with this data or how to cooperate with a computer scientist or data engineer of the company. And probably the same applies also for other kind of neighboring skills, I would say, data handling, data wrangling, but also knowledge about databases, relational databases, for example, if you know something, happen to know something about that, that's something to put in your into your CV, being able to, to bridge languages and perspectives with understandings about how data can be efficiently stored and queried is certainly a skill worth mentioning. Yeah, and even if you don't know that, right, as, as long as you have some experience and some knowledge about coding, you have this mental model, then of course it's, yeah, let's say uh, less effort to learn new things, right, to learn a new programming language, for example. So if you were trained in R, but then the company uses Python, I think still you already know what all this is about and then you need to learn this specific new language with its peculiarities but it's very different from starting from zero so i think one could even advertise not only the skills but as well the willingness and the interest right to learn more definitely yeah it's the the first language that that you learn is always the hardest it's it's similar to to human language in that way is that once you kind of learn how learning a language works. You learn, okay, if I'm talking to you, I say this. If I'm talking to a plural group of people, I say this. If I'm talking to someone that's in a position of respect, I use this other conjugation of a word or like, what's this verb or how to, what's the structure of a sentence that differs? There, there are these sorts of schemas, like you said, that, that you can develop. Just like if you're learning a human language, you can apply those sorts of things to 
like to say, I want to do a for loop. R does it this way, Python does it this way. Where if you don't know what a for loop is, that question becomes senseless where you're like, I don't know how to do a for loop because I don't know what a for loop is. Um, but when you learn the sorts of, how do you learn the terminology around what these programming languages are trying to do and how they do them differently, translating across languages becomes a lot easier to know. Like if I were going to do a visualization in say Seaborn in Python versus doing a visualization in ggplot in R, I kind of know what are the different like R calls them geoms, Python calls them something else. I don't remember. Like what are the essential elements of a plot and how do I tell the code to do those things? Whereas if you're coming in not knowing anything about any of that, it's it's much harder. Um, so kind of once you have the schema, it's easier to, to push into the into new languages and the new areas. So if for listeners that are not able to code at this point, we are to make a, dis, uh, a suggestion where to start, with what language to start. I feel like hearing you talk about ggplot, geoms, and the generative arts, I might know your suggestion. So I like both, actually. I don't. I tend to not pick a side between Python and R. <laughs> I think if any of Python, R, or JavaScript, I think are great to start with. I would. I tend to recommend students start with Python, only because it's easier. It's, and by easier, I just mean it's less, when you get an error message in Python, they tend to be a little bit more informative and they tend to be, the structure of Python tends to be less, there, there are less inconsistencies when it comes to R can have some very arcane, very odd errors that you're like, what on earth are you even telling me right now? What I like about Python also is that it's, a speaking language you have to write if and then and end if and you kind of formulate what the computer has to do and also it forces you to intend which keeps it very easily followable to some extent i guess my suggestion would be to if you aim at the industries at some point python is certainly a great way to go if you aim for the Uh, for the academic route, probably R is a bit more common. Would you share that now, knowing or overseeing the hackathon? What was the prominent language there? So the hackathon, I mean, most, I would say in academia, most folks are using R, at least in communication. There, If you go broader, it's, it's a little bit more varied. You have people using Python. You have, you have a lot of folks, especially in mathematics and more phys like physics and sorts of fields using Julia, which is a more data, it's a much more efficient programming language for large data. And then if you're getting into industry, above all and anything, the one language industry is all about is JavaScript. Like, especially if you're on the internet, any internet software development, anything is going to be in JavaScript at least, or, or some JavaScript framework, like Vue.js or something like this. There's going to be some JavaScript, some flavor of JavaScript being used. For academia, I tend to recommend that students at least are familiar with R, especially if they, if, even if they want to go into a more data science-y role in the industry, R tends to be the standard for data science. Python is getting there when it comes to dashboards and visualization tools and apps. Python being object-oriented, I think it makes it much more flexible but R is definitely much more, there are many more packages in R that let you do many more interesting things, whereas Python 
catching up in some ways as far as the modeling and visualization tools go, but still has a little bit to go. Emesha, what's your preference and suggestion? Well, I think, I mean, my preference is R because that's what I know best, I would say, my where I feel most comfort. But I think there is a kind of network effect here. It's not such a conscious choice, or at least it was not for me. It was just what I kind of encountered on my way when I somehow started with this journey. I did not think that this will have such an impact on my academic life. I just, I think I wanted to visualize some network and found it really not so great to use UCINet or something. I think that's more or less how it started. <laughs> and I wanted something more reproducible. So then it depends very often, you know, which courses we can attend, who is teaching it, who is able to help if we have questions. I think this is in the beginning much more important than yeah, the fact that I'm, I'm sitting there and thinking, what should I learn? But then later on, people sometimes actually do make conscious decisions or learn a second language or you find yourself in, okay, I need to do this in Python, actually, even though I uh, did R until now, so then I have to try out. Maybe a recommendation for everyone who is actually able and willing to do a conscious decision would be to read for example, the book Computational Analysis of Communication that we already mentioned here from Walter van Attefeld, Damian Trilling, and Carlos Arcia Calderon. Because here we find basically both languages in one book. And I think this is actually nice to get an idea. You can see both and then maybe as well see what you personally would prefer. Certainly a diplomatic uh, recommendation. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I... I started myself in R, so R is what I started out with, because like most, I would venture a guess, most social scientists probably start in R just because the network effects that you're mentioning. I now find myself about 90% in Python and about 10% in R. I'll still go back to R for a few things here and there, uh, mostly visualizations. But then as far as data cleaning, data scraping, everything like that, I tend to do in Python. Most of the people that I tend to chat with on a regular basis kind of ultimately arrive at some sort of combo of a few different languages that they're using but starting out in r also the support resources in r like you mentioned are very robust there are lots of really great books and tutorials and online courses that are free there's lots and lots and lots of training material for social scientific sorts of questions in r whereas python at first i think is a little bit more abstract because it's much more of a general language then you can catch up pretty quickly and all of this of course including the book is free um, which is something that um, probably distinguishes coding to come full circle um, also from the previously used guis graphical user interfaces um, that traditional software in this in this regard is i just was thinking now what we talk a lot about early career researchers right how to learn to code and Still in this podcast, we often touched on different career levels. So I was just asking myself, what are we doing as professors or assistant professors on a higher career level where we obviously have more tasks, right? And at least I experienced that administration, you know, teaching, grant writing tasks take a lot of time. And I find myself not so much anymore in data analysis as I would like and I already feel that I'm starting to lose my coding skills, that there are already some developments that I 
kind of miss. So how, I mean, this is very highly speculative, but how can we stay on a level where we make sure that we who are writing grant applications or maybe being PIs of projects on algorithms kind are of up to date and we need to give up control, right, to the PhD students or the postdocs who are more closer into the project? I think that's a really excellent and difficult question. For me, one thing that I've found that works fairly well is if I have a graduate student or something doing an analysis, I always encourage them to share the code with me. Um, this is something that was modeled to me by my advisor back at UCSB, uh, Renee Weber, is anytime we would have an analysis, especially when it would go close to the publication stage, we would always share the code in the lab and people would look over it. And there would always be a few things. For example, if, if Freddie or Chelsea or one of the other people in the lab did an analysis, there were always a few things, even as a graduate student, I would point to in the code and say, oh, that's cool. I didn't know you could do use that package to do that. Or I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could use that operator in R now versus using this other operator. So I think having trying to have the headspace to review other people's code in a similar way that we review other people's manuscripts, obviously not in a, at least not in the current infrastructure in some sort of formalized way. But at least for my graduate students that I have currently, I really enjoy looking over code that they've developed. So for example, I had a student just recently, a graduate student, take a time series analysis class, um, seeing some of the code that they developed for that. It was something that I was able to learn a little bit. And I totally empathize with feeling like you're spending less and less time in front of code because I feel exactly the same way. But I think just kind of trying to rely on some of the past skills that I've developed and then to learn as much as I can vicariously through collaborators that are using code or students or other folks that are using code can, can help as far as keeping up to date. But it's something I definitely am still trying to figure out as well because there's it's just, it's just a different headspace that you tend to be in. And knowing how to review code versus write code is definitely a little bit different thing to get into the habit of doing. I think reviewing code should become institutionalized. There is even a concept of tandem coding where you essentially sit together in pairs in front of a computer, which I love to do with students um, when they try to learn to code. But also in a later stage, just as you mentioned, Jacob, I, I think and I agree that looking over each other's code helps both the one who produced the code, but also the one who reviews the code. As for hiring as a professor, my suggestion probably is to hire people that are more skilled than you are in coding. Have them explain everything, which helps them learning through training and learning through teaching is what we started with this episode and then evolve through that as well. Being able to ask the right questions is certainly the, the skill that, that we are most trained in and then having them explain the latest, fanciest packages to, to solve a, a problem, at least is my strategy that is now open to the world. <laughs> Maybe do team hackathons, who mm. knows? Take, take time for that. I think that's um, something important. Or just attend the next hackathon at ICA that Jacob will co-organize again. Definitely. Yeah, we're, we're hoping to do it in Toronto in 2023. So 
it of course has to go through the official ICA approval process and all of this. But the the plan is currently to do another hackathon in 2023 and maybe even explore doing more kind of modular region-oriented hackathons where there's maybe a US-based one, a EU-based one that, that doesn't have to synchronize around ICA itself. It's what a lot of other organizations are moving into is doing more of a, a large hackathon preceding the major international conference for that discipline, but then also regional hackathons that pull in people who may be within driving or train distance for a little bit more maybe off-schedule hackathon event. So those are things we're exploring potentially for the future and definitely hope to hope to make it a, a resource for early career and, and also later career scholars to to come and participate. And that's that's something we're hoping for for this next year is that we get we're specifically reaching out to more senior scholars to to come join in. And I think it's always it's always a little bit nerve wracking, I would say, even as I mean, I would by no means consider myself a senior scholar, but even me being around graduate students and postdocs doing some of these analyses, thinking like, wow, they're this is they're really skilled. Yeah, but that's how we can learn, I guess. So I am looking forward to this. Yeah, consider us for the next edition, please. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that's a wrap. Jacob, thank you so much. That was so insightful and so nice to reflect on what actually coding is, how we all could learn it or teach it, and uh, that this is not only a question for emerging young scholars, but as well for, let's say, uh, somewhat older, more senior scholars. Thank you very much for being with us. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And also thanks a lot to you for listening. We look forward, as always, to your suggestions for future topics, questions, but also guests, feedback. Just email us, drop us a line and share this episode as well as the podcast with others. We hear you, you hear us again in the next episode. Until then, bye-bye. Bye. What is it about? Computational communication science?